Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. Do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is here to tell us he's taking no pleasure in killing. There's just some things he's got to do. Welcome, Simon Bamford. How you doing, mate? I'm very good, thank you, Andrew. Um, it's interesting that your name is Andrew Graves. Do you think... You were born to be doing Tea for Terror and that this was kind of in your in your past because I've just worked with a, a film director called um, Andrew Church Churchyard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just beginning to think everybody seems to have very fitting names. Yeah, it is. It is actually my real name as well. I'm not trying to change it in some sort of crass way. It is actually my real name. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. I, I kind of looked into the sort of um, the history of the name, and I think there's two. There's kind of two two versions. One, I, one I liked the idea of. I, I, it, the apparently it's got like Eastern European connotations, and it actually one of the literal translations is graves, meaning count or landowner which is quite apt uh, i like that but more <laughs> likely my ancestors were probably grave grave diggers, grave diggers. You know, so <laughs> probably or, more, or you, you were know. just or you or maybe you were just a very stern family you know with very little sense of humor it was just very grave yeah it's probably yeah but yeah being in in mind that that was my dad's side, I can yeah, I can I can buy into that. <laughs> it wasn't known for his sense of humour, my my father, uh, but yeah, uh, there you go. Um, so what have you been up to? Busy, busy, busy. I'd imagine. Yes. Uh, so we've just got through um, Christmas. So um, and but I'll talk more about that um, shortly when we get onto the film because Christmas has a connection to the film that we're going to be talking about as I found out yesterday. Um, so I've been over to the States a few times, um, went over to see Clive um, um, in October, November, and then um, did Spooky Empire show in Florida. Um, in a couple of weeks time, I'm going to the, um, the premiere of a film called Mosaic, which is an anthology film. Um, filmed in South End on Sea and um, actually premiering at Horror on Sea. So um, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing that with trepidation because I haven't seen any, apart from doing some ADR work on it, some audio work, um, I haven't seen any of it. So, and I always think I'm pretty shite in everything that I do. So um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a shock and it's even more of a shock to sit with an audience because because my confidence levels usually drop enormously, but that's just me. You find that the imposter syndrome thing—it never goes, does it? But no. I think I think I'm always slightly suspicious of people that don't have an imposter syndrome. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, you should have an imposter syndrome. I think that's part of it. You know, you should be kind of trepidatious about what you do. Because I think that that usually is quite telling that that person takes what they do seriously. Whereas I think if yes. you don't, you know, you, you, the, 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 there's confidence and then there's arrogance. And I think you can spill into <laughs> arrogance with the, the latter, I think. I don't think I'm arrogant. Um, no, I, no, I'm no. Quite I'm quite envious of people who 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 have who have that wonderful confidence where they just believe in everything they're doing because it can be quite um, harsh to see yourself. It's like listening to your voice. Nobody nobody likes listening to their voice, but and seeing yourself kind of performing. All I see is me performing. I don't see what the audience is seeing. And again, once we get talking about the film that we're going to be talking about. Um, interesting looking at the performances and that and the acting in that and i was kind of relating to how what what they were doing um but we'll get on to that later anyway so um what else am i doing so um i've just signed up for a film called the black eyed children um which is shooting well, of course you have <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when it says black, I hadn't thought about this before. It doesn't mean black eyed as in somebody's been punching them a lot. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm saying this. The black eyed is as in more of um, their, their eyes are black. They're mysterious children that come from um, nether worlds and are forewarnings of terrible things that are happening. So, yes, uh, so I'm doing that in 2024, which. I'm looking forward to. I'm also going to Atlanta in three weeks for Days of the Dead. Um, and I'm very looking forward to seeing. Um, so I've recently become friends with Heather, oh, Heather Lagenkamp. Is that the way you pronounce it? Um, she was in um, Nightmare on Elm Street. She was the original girl, I think, in Nightmare on Elm Street. But I found I've just been watching um, The Midnight Club. And she's one of the uh, one of the leads in that, and been thoroughly enjoying it. So um, I, I can't wait to see her again in a, a few weeks and pick her brains about that and find out what it was like to work on. Because I have huge respect for the writers and the direction and the cast on that. It was a it was a great series. Did you see it? No, no, no. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. So do you recommend it, do you? Definitely, definitely. And another one I've been thoroughly enjoying is um, the Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Fall of the House of Usher. Now I've um, just I've just kind of dumped Netflix uh, a few months. I'll have you because they were just charging me ridiculous. I just wasn't watching as much as I used to on there because I'm uh -huh. quite into physical media. But I have heard that that is um, top quality, top notch stuff. So hopefully, if it gets physical release, I will buy it. Um, but yeah, uh -huh. it, I've heard nothing but good stuff about that. Yeah, no, it's really good. No, I, I, I'm similar actually. I, I, I'll go through. I'll drain everything I can from one media and then kind of cut that for a couple of years and go on to something else. Because um, otherwise you have so many subscriptions. In fact, coincidentally, um, I had on the show, I had Nicholas Vince on the show a while back and uh, uh -huh. he, his chosen film was um, Mask of the Red Death. So, you know, it's nice to know all the Cenobites <laughs> to Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> so i mean you mentioned clive there i'm I'm assuming you mean clive barker when you met, met up with him um yes so i mean obviously 
um y you're very busy you've got lots of stuff lots of projects on all the time but i guess a lot of people will know you through those kind of early barker um adaptations so particularly with hellraiser and hellbound hellraiser 2 and, and nightbreed and things like that so do you want to just tell us a little bit about that i mean how how did you get involved with clive in the first place so um actually nick nick vince and i were both at drama school together um we were in the same year um at mount view in in north london and um i was doing a production of king lear playing the fool in king lear and i was very lucky in that the um director had just finished playing the fool in king lear for the royal shakespeare company so he was giving me a lot of tips and ideas and uh he he was he directed it as a kabuki version of king lear so it was very unusual and living around the corner was um a young man and his partner who just moved down from liverpool um they had a fringe theater company that they'd started and that was clive barker and um he was performing then he was acting and directing and writing for the the, the dog company and uh uh, him and um, I think Doug Bradley and Oliver Parker all came to see this production of King Lear that I was doing at drama school and liked what I was doing. So they they invited me to to join the company when I graduated, um, which is yes, which is what what I did. Um, and uh, Clive and I have been friends for gosh over forty years now, um, which is nice because Clive's quite a recluse these days. Um, um, Doug, Doug says he's become the um, the recluse on the hill because he lives on a hill in Beverly Hills. Um, but um, as as the years have gone by, he's become more and more a recluse in a room on a hill because he very rarely leaves the actual room that he's in. So uh, when he does get out, it's it's rare, and he has a handful of friends that he trusts, which seems to get smaller and smaller. Which is kind of sad because he's such a wonderful human being. And so his his brain is just mind blowing and his intelligence is humbling. And I never feel that I'm worthy when I go around there. But he's we've kept friends for all these years and he invites me over and I go and stay. In fact, um he's going to be I'm doing doing a show in Chicago in uh March, March. And um he's he's going to be attending that one, I think. He's got five shows coming up um, this year and next year. And that is like his farewell shows that in that he's not going to be doing, not he's planning on checking out anytime soon, but he's he's not planning on doing any other shows after the, these ones as he wants to concentrate on his writing, of which he's prolific. When I went to see him last year, he had uh, he had six or seven books on the go all at once which is just crazy <laughs> it'd be nice if he could just finish some so we could read them i'm desperate to see aberat he did confide in me many years ago how aberat how he was planning on i don't know if you've read aberat how he was planning on um um wrapping that all up and how it was going to conclude um so that that was interesting but um yeah i love those and disney were disney were interested in um in that at one point <laughs> um they signed disney were very jealous of warner brothers having the rights for um harry potter yeah. and um, were desperate to find something that could compete with that franchise and came across Clive barker's aberat which were kind of aimed at, at teenagers and um they signed him and it was all very exciting and, and Clive, Clive said, said to me at the time he said 
Clive Barker and Disney, there's two names we would never have put together. And he's got such an evil sense of humour. He said, I wonder how far I can push it before they dump me. And so he started kind of um, putting out all these pictures of erect cocks and naked men and, and all this stuff and writing all this stuff. And, and, and they dumped him like a hot potato, which was such a shame because it would have been lovely to see. Maybe it will still happen in the future, but it was lovely to see. It needs somebody like of Disney's um, wealth and expertise to actually create something like the, the whole world of Aberat and the the uh, the islands well, I, of time. I think the, the problem is, I think, was with, with something like Disney. I mean, as we've seen in more recent years, it is this, and it's not just Disney. I think it's this idea of producers and money people and them recognizing a property that they might be able to make some money out of and, and kind of the artistry is the last thing that anyone considers you know it's like it's interesting i mentioned this before but you know the new barbie film you know whatever you think about the barbie film it's one of the biggest hits of 2023 it was huge you know uh but immediately rather than producers thinking well what made this popular in terms of its feminist angle or the sort of satire that was inherent within it no which mattel product can we market next you know it's it, they, they miss the point you know and um so i'm kind of glad that clive uh, pushed it about as far as it could go i think that's a yeah um yeah, yeah. You're, you're so right and usually the reason that most of these films are, are kind of suddenly appear out of nowhere as huge successes is because of the intelligence in the writing and the the narrative and the storytelling and and it 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 challenges the audience to think as well as enjoy to be involved on an intellectual level and that's the bit that they <laughs> completely miss totally mm -hmm. you're absolutely right they'll go for the lowest common denominator and think oh this must be why it's successful it's it's a shame it's a shame there isn't a standout producer out there and there probably is who just won't take enormous risks or a, or a company it needs a company behind a producer that lets them take risks because it's only by taking risks that these these um wonderful projects get made i, I mean I, this hope on the other side of it is like you know you've got companies like a24 and things like that that are they do seem to be you know producing things that are a bit different and strange and you know particularly in terms of horror and sci-fi you're getting some you know i and i would you know i don't want to by this, I don't want to say, I don't want to sound like, oh, nothing good comes out, because it does. You know, 21st Century has produced some of the best horror films ever made, full stop. Just absolutely brilliant stuff, you know. So I'm just talking about the big kind of companies and this kind of misinterpretation of ideas occasionally, you know. Yes, um, I'm going to start thinking I'm a bit of a hypocrite anyway, because saying all of this about kind of dredging up old stuff from the past and not coming up with new ideas and really my career has been on a film that was made in 1986. <laughs> but I, so. I, you know, that, that says a lot, you know, something big that I don't think, I don't think that's not a negative thing because I, I think that that just show, you know, I spoke about this with Nicholas and, you know, and um, hopefully barbie's going to come on at some point as well and uh, it, you know it, those first two hellraiser films they are just incredible and it's just it's just it, they're kind it's kind of like odd how they happened and how you know clive was able to get away with it because uh, i mean uh -huh. they 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 just kind of redesigned the horror film overnight i think they they were they yeah. are still 
to i mean i've got a real i mean we covered um hellbound hellraiser 2 uh on episode 10 and you know we both kind of it's just uh i i I've, I, I think objectively possibly the first film is is better but the second film i think i just have a massive soft spot for that film it's just brilliant you know uh kenneth cranham is just 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 yeah. incre- just uh, the, the the idea that is here's clive's idea and we've got you know this guy is just basically he's turned into a syphilitic penis <laughs> it's just just amazing well here we go <laughs> <laughs> yeah and ken ken would love the idea that that's what he was playing <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I saw an interview with him and he was saying you know he only did the part because he was weighing up he'd been offered a shakespeare play and then he'd been offered this film and i think he spoke to gary oldman and gary oldman said do fucking hellraiser uh, but i think what swung it for him was that he saw some antique curtains he really wanted and and i think the film was paying slightly more so he, he went for the antique curtain option <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that story too. I've heard that story. That I love the fact that that's what you would do. I love the, a sweet little antique shop in Hastings or somewhere that you you would do this monstrous film, <laughs> <laughs> flying around on on this kind of strange thing that he did. I've, I've been lucky enough to work with Ken um, five times since then on um, on a TV series for Amazon called Dark Ditties. Um, and he's just as as wicked now as he was then. He's got a wonderful sense of humour. <laughs> now then, Simon. So, um, when, uh, so, what was your kind of entry point into horror films? When, when, what was your earliest memories of, of sort of making, you know, inroads into horror? So, um, I grew up in a little uh, village in Warwickshire called Market Bosworth, which is where the Battle of Bosworth um, happened, and. It's a tiny little place and it had one little news agent and all the other boys kind of around the age of 14, 15, 16 were all kind of trying to steal the top shelf girly magazines. And I was trying to um, sneak out with um, copies of Fangoria. <laughs> and <laughs> so I think at that point I knew that um, maybe my interests were different to other people's. Um, and I, I was just fascinated by these, by the graphics. And of course, they were American magazines, and we're talking back in the seventies now. So, anything American was kind of back then was kind of glamorous and unusual and and different. Um, and certainly for the seventies, there was nothing that compared. And I used to love Mad Magazine as well. So, all of those American influences I, I found interesting at that age. Um, and I think. From then on, I, I found horror interesting. Um, I remember I always looked much younger than um, than I actually am. So um, the big film that everybody wanted to get into see at the time was The Exorcist because, like the film we're going to talk about, it was banned, which just did nothing but make it even more popular. Uh, there's nothing like Forbidden Fruit to uh, to get the interest stimulated. Um, so. Uh, so yes, I bet I couldn't. I couldn't get into the Exorcist. In fact, I was slightly disappointed. I think when I finally did see the Exorcist, I found it a bit slow. But I'd completely forgotten about the opening sequences in that, um, which were very similar to Hellraiser. Actually, you can see where Clive was influenced by that. With, um, I think they were in the desert and they were finding this this artifacts in the beginning of um, 
the Exorcist, and of course, they seem seem to be in some kind of um, exotic market in the the Asia for the beginning of of Hellraiser. So it's very very similar. Even the soundtrack seems quite similar. And other things, can we we ought to announce really uh, other similarities that I. So the the film we're going to be talking about is um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I watched it last night just to kind of so I could remember it. And there are all other things that I think Clive maybe had picked up on from that. So there are a lot of um, things from insects, uh, use of insects in the old house there. And then there was one sequence where the girl sees something on the floor and there's this kind of scratchy, itching insect sound. And it's almost exactly the same as the sound effect that's in that in Hellraiser when they're looking at the table and there's these insects kind of crawling around. So in, interesting to see pre-Hellraiser influences on that. Um, anyway, I'm, 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 diver, I'm diver, going away from the topic. Uh, so yes, so I uh, wanted to see Hellraiser. So when I moved to London to go to drama school, I met Clive. Clive introduced me to um, private cinema clubs um of of, of... <laughs> i see you raising your eyebrow. Did. <laughs> <laughs> yes various various types of <laughs> private cinema clubs but the one that sticks in my mind was scala the yeah, scala yeah, cinema yeah. and i remember going um there with friends with clive or lots of people to see i remember i was thinking about it last night see pink flamingos um the uh, uh the divine film um yeah. a film called la maîtresse um which was a french french film it was based in france i think it was an american film about uh a sadomasochistic dominatrix and um one of the reasons this film was banned because the scala played banned films basically you had to be a member to go and see these films um was uh they had a scene they used real clients of a real dominatrix although most of the cast were act actors um and one of the scenes was uh this chap having his foreskin nails to a piece of wood and it was it was real <laughs> it's the kind of thing what's seen never ever forgotten and we're talking 40 50 years ago huh? <laughs> um <laughs> that's the last time you took your mum into <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they are to my parents. <laughs> but thankfully, they're both still with us. Um, but um, yeah, I remember going with my granddad to see Hellraiser when it came out, and he was like, "Oh, very nice, yeah, lovely, lovely." <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, and the other film that I went to see at the Scala, all I can remember was Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that was banned, and uh, and that was fascinating to see and terrified the life out of me. I have to say, and watching it last night, I was—I didn't have a cushion, but I had my iPad out, so because I just don't think I could kind of put myself into watching that film again because I found it so distressing as a film, so scary and very interesting, the way that it was um, it marketed, that it was a true story. Can we? Can I? All right, let's talk a bit more about one yeah. of. Found. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, the um, the rumor bill says that it was based on a tr true story, but uh, from what I read last night, that was more to do with marketing. Um, and although it was kind of, I think when he started doing some research into his premise, 
um, Tobe Hooper discovered Ed Gain and discovered little bits, took little bits from him, like he had a, a mask made out of human skin and he had furniture made out of human bones. Um, but I think the, the interesting story, which I loved, was that Tobe Hooper came up with the idea coming on to Christmas, which I talked about earlier. He was in a Christmas shop, doing his Christmas shopping, and the shopping mall was absolutely packed full of people, full of the non-Christmas spirit that you get just pre-Christmas, um, getting angry and, and just trying to get things and pushing people out the way. And he, he saw a display of chainsaws in this Christmas shopping mall, and it just flashed through his head that one way of getting out of this hellish shopping experience would be to just go and get the chainsaws and cut his way out. Now, I think this is a lovely story. And he's, uh, it goes, the story goes that he went home and pretty much that night came up with the whole idea of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, including the girl escaping twice, oops, spoilers. And um, it just, so much of it formed in his brain just from one Christmas shopping trip. Um, which I think is is fascinating and uh, and uh, and rather lovely. So yeah, I mean we we we've kind we have we've, we've mentioned it a few times, but obviously yeah, this this podcast we are going to be talking about the nineteen seventy four seminal horror film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed by Tobe Hooper. This is the movie that Rex Reed called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. This film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. It accomplishes everything it sets out to do with brilliance and unparalleled terror. Simon, you, you kind of mentioned it there. So was the was seeing it at the Scala, was that the first time you saw it? Yes. Okay. It had been banned. It was it was notorious um, when it came out in the it must have been 70s, early 80s, 70s, 80s. I don't know. I, and there was a lot of talk of it not being allowed to ever be shown in the UK. Well, Great Britain, it was then called. Um, <laughs> um and then they, it was allowed to be shown at these private cinema clubs, but it was the only place you could see it. And 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 it, it's difficult in retrospect to see how shocking it could be because these days we're so used to reality TV series, reality films, um, reality being shown as entertainment. But that didn't happen then. There was nothing like that then. So to have this thing that was saying it was a kind of, a true story, which it wasn't. Um, and then it was kind of the way it was filmed was so clever because uh, the performances seemed to be being improvised. Um, a lot of the dialogue um, seemed very unstructured. Um, and, and everything I had seen before then had very much um, a structured narrative, the storyline. Everything was very much controlled, and this was very loose. So it was like watching a documentary film, um, which for the time was bizarre. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not sure I like this when it started. It was so interestingly enough as well, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the disabled character, I was thinking about him. He has an interesting scene where they get to this old house and the other two couples go into the house and suddenly you, you're not really aware 
they're all laughing and having a good time, but the the sound doesn't let you really hear what they're laughing about. Mm. And it's I was thinking, ah, I see what Toe Hooper's doing here. He's taking the the disabled chap, and it's his experience. We're seeing everything through his eyes at this point because he's being completely left out yeah. of everything that's happening. All we can hear yeah, yeah. is them giggling and having fun and him his frustration and not being able to join in and just being um, pushed away from this. I, uh, so, so it was clever. It was, it was interesting watching it again. And I have huge respect. Some of the stuff that I found out about um, some of the scenes and the, the way they all got damaged as they were filming it. Um, and I do, I was lucky enough. Um, I did a, a few conventions in Germany back in the, um, early 2000s and i was lucky enough to to meet gunnar hansen who plays leatherface a few times and we, we went for meals and things and uh he he was the gentlest loveliest man the most unlikely to play leatherface. i'm not going to dinner with leatherface <laughs> <laughs> i'm just not doing he, it <laughs> he was so lovely and uh, it was interesting talking to him about it and, and obviously telling him you know what a huge fan i am of, of that film um and uh, reading a little bit about him um he was he wasn't the first choice for leatherface evidently he was um he was training to be an actor um i can't remember the austin in austin in texas at the time and somebody had said to him oh you'd be brilliant for this this part in this film but the past had already been cast and uh, this is what i've read so i'm hoping this is true and that but the the chap who originally was cast they found him um locked in his room completely legless drunk saying that there's really horrible vibes on this film and i don't want to be involved in it anymore so he kind of pulled out and and tobe hooper uh, gonna went to see tobe who hired him on the spot um to play to play leatherface but there were also really bad things i know i know this is true because i remember him talking about it gonna talking about it because sadly he's no longer with us that they they um they got kind of terribly ripped off from pay on the film. I think it's one of the most successful horror films financially that's ever been made. Um, I think I've read two accounts. One said it was eighty thousand dollars, another said one hundred and forty. But I think it made twenty four million. Mm. Um, so and and is still making money. Well, it is now because I've just hired it last night. So <laughs> I'm still putting money in their coffers. And the cast um, because it was so low budget, they took. A percentage of profit um but the what they didn't know was that the it wasn't from the whole profit it was from the production company and the production company um kind of did what production companies often do when it's that kind of deal and uh and made sure it didn't make a profit <laughs> from that side of the company so i think um the, the hitchhiker guy i'm sorry i can't remember the actor's names i'm terrible for names he, I read that um, nine months on, he he'd actually made twenty four dollars eighty seven cents, and that was only after kind of constantly hampering them for some kind of form of payment, which is shocking, shocking. Well, I, th I think you know you mentioned the first guy that was lined up and ended up getting drunk because of the bad vibes. Um, I I think you know it it it's great that you know Gunnar ended up in that role but i think that the first guy was right i mean i i think i mean we'll get yeah. into the making of and the the horror the horrend the horror stories around that later but i think that that is what i mean the the thing with this film is that i remember the 
fairly clearly the first time I saw it and I loved it. But I know I was in a, a room with people who were very disappointed because I think their reputation precedes it. And I think that they they had kind of got it into their heads. It was going to be this over the top splatter film where characters are going to be wading around in oceans of blood. And it's just not that film. But to me, what is the, the most terrifying thing about it is, like you said, it's that realism it's the speed uh if you think about when when leatherface kills you know takes the bit it's that speed he is he is treating it like a slaughterhouse you know he's getting his job yes. done. that's what's the most terrifying thing and also it's the 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 what you can't recapture now is that 70s gnarliness you, you just it, it's it's icky again like we covered Black Christmas in the last episode from nine, from the same year, 1974. And that is the same thing. You want to take a shower after seeing that film. And you do definitely yeah. want to take a shower. The cast definitely wanted to take a shower after making this. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But it's just, it, it's, it, you can smell this film. You, you can smell it. You can feel the sweat. You can feel the, the, the discomfort of the actors and the characters. Um, it's just a nasty but brilliant film. Um, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's one of those few films that I think this it comes on the back. If you think about, you know, if we go, okay, back in the day, you've got your universal horrors. You've got the very gothic stuff. You've got Hammer. You've got... Uh, the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations by Corman. It's all very gothic. It's great. I love that stuff. Then, you know, then you get things like, you know, Lay Diabolique in 1955, followed a few years later by Psycho and things like Eyes Without a Face. This new kind of weird horror coming in, this more visceral, this more strange, this kind of more real kind of horror coming in. And then by the time you get to the end of the 60s, you know, the Vietnam War, and you're getting people like George Romero introducing new levels of violence and horror. Um, but then I think one of the key films, even though it's not a great film, I would argue, but it is an important film, is Last House on the Left. Now that introduces in 71, 72, this new, very uncomfortable feeling of nihilism. Uh, before that, you'd had horror films where the villain had a reasoning behind it. And suddenly with Last House on the left, these people were just doing something because, because, and that's terrifying, you know, yeah. and this could be people down the road, literally, you know, down the street. And so I think, um, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a much better film than Last House on the left, but it's feeding into that vibe. This is why the hell is this happening and and there there is you know we can talk about the politics of it and and it being about arguably about you know um broken communities broken societies unemployment people being pushed to the fringes and then city dwellers coming in as interlopers and kind of gawping at these people and and getting what they their comeuppance you know all this kind of stuff um but in essence, there is a, 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 a thread of nihilism running through this film, which is hot. You can't really top that with CG or effects. It's just a sense of something gone. In some ways, it's kind of not, it's more brutal, but it's in some ways it's a bit Lovecraftian because it is that, that idea of love, Lovecraft repeated over and over again of let's take a stranger and dump them into a town which has gone absolutely weird. And this yeah. is kind of very much that, you know. Um, and there is this kind of 
very, very claustrophobic sense of no escape and no nobody's coming to your help. Nobody cares. Nobody's you're you're on your own. In, in a similar way, another film that I absolutely love is Rosemary's Baby. And that was not nihilistic in a way, in a sense, because they, they are doing it for a reason. But that whole sense of paranoia that which which does come out in Texas Chainsaw because you think she's escaped and then you realize that, oh, no, there are a lot more people involved in all of this but in, in in rosemary's baby the fact that the whole of kind of society seems to be involved in this devil worship and and kind of take, ripping this baby out of mia farrow's womb um it was another film that i absolutely loved when i was uh uh growing up um yes uh, uh, interesting the way he 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 builds up this idea and the, they talk when they're in the van about the slaughterhouse and you're absolutely right. Their very first um, murder is done so matter-of-factly. It is like, oh, oh, here's just another cattle for the slaughter. Hit him over the head, bang, 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 shut the door. Done. Dealt with. No no emotion comes out of nowhere. It, it's very much drawing the same parallels between what we do to animals and what, and, and how close, you know, we're just animals ourselves. We can, we're just as um, uh, vulnerable as as anybody else or any other creature on the planet and um yeah the the fact that um it could just happen is is terrifying it's some um, and and that's also kind of I suppose a kind of fear of strangers which of course in today's society is being used so dramatically from a political point of view and so terrifyingly this um that uh, who should we trust should we trust anybody it's it's crazy and it's very i think that's even more scary. Actually, now the way that uh, xenophobia is being used in society is uh, is actually scarier than Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it's happening to the world rather than just individuals. Okay, so um, so I mean, we will come back to the film itself in a second and the making of thereof and all that kind of stuff, but. Um, I'm just wondering what's your kind of knowledge or your understanding of Toby Hooper and, and you know, because uh, he's had a very, or he had a very interesting career. Obviously, he's no longer with us now, but he um, he did a couple of features before this. This was his big, his breakout hit, even though, as you rightly point out, he didn't really make any money from it at the time. Um, but then, he, you know, he kind of went on to do various things. I mean, later on in the 80s, you've got things like uh, Life Force, uh, and then he did the remake of Invaders <laughs> from Mars. And I think he's had it. He's just had a. He never sort of reached the heights. You know, I think this film and a couple of other things he's done have been brilliant, but uh -huh. he kind of had a weird career. And I think, you know, there was all that kind of controversy with Poltergeist. Which I, I, you know, I would I would go out on a limb and say he absolutely did direct it, but because it was under the sort of production of Spielberg, he was very heavy-handed with his production at that point. Yeah. It was never going to not look like a Spielberg film. Uh, I actually think Poltergeist Two is scarier, but I think you know, in terms of a film, Poltergeist still holds up. I think, but he never really. I was really surprised yesterday when I was doing some research to see his name as director because I just assumed that Spielberg directed Poltergeist and then there it is an IMDB that Toe Hooper actually directed Poltergeist and, and Spielberg was producing it and, and writing I think as well but um, I was so surprised by that you know it, just in my 
memory of of life it doesn't feel like that was the right person to have directed it um it's funny how history plays games like that isn't it uh, how memory sorry i've got a strange unidentified flying object flying past my window sorry i'll, I'll concentrate again sorry it's all right <laughs> back in the room <laughs> if you suddenly disappear <laughs> um yeah i i yeah it, I, well i think poltergeist yeah i i do i really like poltergeist but yeah it, it's just because i think it's got that whereas you know you if you look at something like texas chainsaw massacre as 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 mentioned earlier it's so grainy and dirty and horrible whereas poltergeist has obviously got that spielberg veneer it's very clean it, mm -hmm. you know it's kind of i think you know in some ways even though i came into horror from different angles i think as a as a kid maybe growing up in the 80s you could see that as being a kind of gateway so if you think about the last scenes of sort of indiana jones where people are melting away and then you've got this the scenes in this it's almost like you know you can go you can watch indiana jones as a family adventure film with this horror bit at the end and then you can go to poltergeist then maybe check out texas chainsaw mask <laughs> it's uh -huh. kind of like a through road into more serious horror i think Interestingly enough, I, I read that um, Topo Topooper <clears throat> wanted Texas Chainsaw Massacre to be um, a PG film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when you look at it, there's very little visual horror that is actually there. You were talking about how people were disappointed because of the hype that the film had had, and watching it, and, and my memory of it was that it was really graphic in its violence, but um, but it it really isn't. It's all kind of perceived. And it's just that that horrible feeling of um, danger happening, of, of of something about to happen. I can't think of the right word. Um, that is so disturbing about the film. Um, and and Toby Hooper evidently said that um, there were like two ounces of blood were actually used in the whole of the film. There was very little that was actually. And he was advised that if he wanted it to be, I mean, it was never going to be a PG rating, but if he wanted it to have a lower rating so it had a bigger audience, then uh, he needed to limit the amount of blood, and he did. So it's it's very much uh, uh, perceived in the audience's mind. Um, and my memory of it was, because I, I haven't seen it since the 1970s, um, was that it was very, very bloody and and, uh, and graphic, but actually it wasn't. But it doesn't need to be. It's interesting. It's a it's a life lesson and stuff that um, it, 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 the more internalized in the in the audience, um, the scarier a film can be. It doesn't have to be showing you everything. It can well, be. It, it's our fear. It, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's kind of like it's much more in a kind of Hitchcockian vein. You know, that is. With Psycho, people imagined that they saw more blood than they did because it's not actually there, you know. Uh, and I think that in 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 that way, it's kind of it's not old fashioned because it's a very new film for the time. It's a very new kind of way of doing things. But in certain ways, there is a kind of old fashioned vibe that we don't, you know, uh, blood, lack of blood doesn't mean lack of brutality. And you can't. Oh, this film is brutal. It really yeah. is brutal. <laughs> and a brutal does again. Brutal's not necessarily about. Um, we see everything. The brutality comes in what we can imagine and what is going on. It's worse than what we can see. 
what's under yeah. the, under the surface is is even worse because we're only we're only shown certain parts of this um you know and and i think when we do see the violence i mean one of the most horrible scenes in it is is where you know the girl is just she's just hung on a meat hook i mean oh. that's just it's you know and that i kind of i mean in some ways though i mean this shows you how kind of cemented these things are i mean in some ways i mean one of the first kind of horror films ever made in inverted commas was way back in sort of in the 19th century you know this is all you know on so no sorry in the i think it was 1903 uh blue beard by george milley and it was done, i mean that has women being hung on meat hooks in that film and say so this is kind of you know 70 years later or whatever you've got this yeah. it's kind of it just shows you the way we were going to go once once we've invented this technology it's either going to go pornographic or extreme violence you know it's it's it, 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 that's the, the and so i think there's a lot of stuff in there but yeah it is it, it's what they don't show us and and it's how did this set up happen <laughs> that's that's what's only hinted at you know and then we get the dinner table scene which is brilliant it's funny it's horrible but it's funny and it, it's proper american satire you know this is let's take all these kind of sitcom families we've been throwing onto your screens for years and let's do a, a the sickest version of that you know we even got leatherface with his lipstick on he's the yeah. character we've got granddad it's let's take that and make it the worst possible version of that he's married with children on acid yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yes and that film took 27 hours to film they did it in oh. one epic film um in in a scene the house, evidently they had like real meat and real bones uh, in the house. And it was, they were filming in a heat wave, I believe. Yeah. It was 100 degrees. There was no air con. And um, in, in in between takes, the cast were rushing to the windows and 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 vomiting outside of the windows. Now, how much of that is, is uh, urban legend? I don't know. But I, I can imagine that it was pretty grim. Um, and and um, Leatherface had three masks. Uh so he had his murder's mask. He had his kind of uh, <laughs> his household mask, which was when he was like cleaning and just kind of tidying up. And then he had his dinner mask, yeah, as you say, which was which had the um, the makeup on because the idea of dressing for dinner and um, it, it, pushing pushing your cast to those kind of extremes, filming over twenty seven hours. And I don't think it was planned that they were going to film over that period. But the guy who played the the granddad. Now, from what I read yesterday, his makeup took 10 hours and he said he would only go through that process once. But when I watched the film, watching the film, I was thinking, how can have that taken 10 hours? Because it looked like one mask yeah. that would have been put on him and maybe glued around the edges. But that no way would have that taken 10 hours to put on. It wasn't sections of of, of latex that would, would be... Um, complicated to apply, so I'm, I'm sure there's a little bit of urban legend there. But I, I can believe that they filmed over 27 hours just to get the stress and the anger and the frustration out of their cast. That kind of seems. And Marilyn, uh, poor Marilyn, she's, she's um. So there's the scene where um, they slit her finger, and um, evidently they had this device with a bulb with blood in it and a little fine wire and. Um, 
um, the guy slitting the finger kept forgetting to press the bulb and then the blood or the false blood was congealing in the tube so it wasn't coming out. And they did take after take after take after this, evidently, and then they got so frustrated that they, he <laughs> the actor took the, uh, the sellotape that was blunting the actual knife off the knife. So they've now got a sharp knife and they actually cut her finger and they did it for real. And she didn't realise until after they finished the take, I suppose because she was so kind of in the moment and probably like everybody else, completely frustrated. So that was actually happening. That I, And I do believe that because I've read that on several uh, several occasions. Um, but also when the, they're trying to get Grandpa to slaughter her and he's got this hammer. Now I'm thinking, please, God. <laughs> That's a brilliant scene, it kept hitting her head. Oh, and I know oh. it's probably a sound effect of a, of a, but it just looks so real. And even if it was a foam hammer, the, the actual kind of wooden handle, that was definitely to hitting her head. And it was hitting it again and again. And they were just the scenes that we were seeing, the takes that we were seeing. So I definitely believe that uh, the, 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 the cast were damaged and the extreme close-ups of her eyes was so bloodshot, which kind of also goes with a 27 hour shoot not that i've ever thankfully had to do a 27 hour shoot um but it kind of makes sense to, of, of her performance especially especially at the end with that absolute uh, uh, exhilaration and horror and everything that she's throwing into that scene when she's driving away on that truck to get that kind of performance and the audience is so with her at that moment it it, it, it takes pushing your cast to absolute extremes. And I, I think Toe Pooper, I think, is, is credited with saying the cast hated him by the end of the film. And it took years for them to actually kind of forgive him. Uh, and, and you kind of see that. Like you were saying, you can smell it. You can smell how dirty and perverse this is. It must have been rank. It must have been. You know, we can sit here now, you know, 50 years on and you know, it's 50th anniversary this year. And it's like, well... Well, yeah, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's a brilliant film, but God, it must have been horrible for them. I mean, horrible. I mean, even if you take away the 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 raw meat and bones that were littering this this red hot old nineteenth century farmhouse, you know, um, even in you know, still would have been horrible. This is nineteen early nineteen seventies. People didn't bathe quite the way we do now. You know, they yeah. weren't, they weren't showering as much as we are. You know, they would have been young kids, hippies or whatever, you know, thrown yeah. into this situation. You know, just as the story of the film is an ordeal, the filming of this would have been an ordeal as well. And, and they had they only had one costume, evidently. The budget only allowed one costume. So they were wearing the same clothes for the whole shoot. Um, another interesting fact I found, um, the original one of the original titles for the film was um, Head Cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is they, they talk about earlier in the film when they're talking about the slaughter, slaughterhouse. And then that was changed. To, it was going to be called Leatherface. Um, and it wasn't until right at the last minute, the film was financed by the Texas um, Film Funding Board or something along those lines. And it was the guy who kind of got them the, the financing that came up with the kind of the getting Texas basically into the title. Uh, and so that's how where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came from, uh, which I think is kind of an interesting uh, detail. 
Um, it is. It's brilliant. I think you know it's kind of over the top, but it's a great title because it does lend yeah. into that idea that it might be true as well. You know, it's the sort yeah. of the kind of you know it's ripped wrought from the headlines. You know, it's that kind of title. It's great. It's a brilliant title. And again, like the title is like a punch in the face before you've even started with this film. The title's <laughs> a punch. You're going to see what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was the thing. Um, uh, so they were using a real chainsaw that was actually working. I know from wearing butterball um, how little, so I couldn't see anything in, in the original makeup for that because there were no eye holes. But, um, in a second film, I asked them if he was going to take his glasses off and they said no. So I made these tiny little eye holes in the makeup, but it really meant I couldn't see anything. But all that happened then was that people assume that you can see but actually you can't because your your peripheral vision is so tiny that you just cannot see very much. And so, and that is exactly what um, Gunnar had as Leatherface in his mask was he, he said he couldn't see much. Plus they put him in three inch lifts in his shoes and then gave him a live chainsaw. <laughs> he was th throwing about the set. Evidently at one take, it landed like inches away from somebody's head. I mean... Uh, again, um, how much of that is urban legend? I don't know, because from a sound perspective, you don't want the sound of, an, of a real chainsaw going. It was drowned so much off, although there's not much sound happening. But would you really? But then I was looking at another one and there seemed to be smoke coming from the chainsaw. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Thinking, okay. But again, that could have been, I don't know, 1970s. I, I I actually believe it was a real chainsaw. I don't I, think. I, I can imagine there were certain scenes where it was, and certain scenes where it wasn't. I think the end scene where he's kind of throwing it around. I mean, that that uh -huh. would have probably would have put the sound on afterwards for that. I, I don't know, but um, yeah. I mean, I, the ending to this, you know, it's it's kind, of, you know, it it's it as it has it follows the kind of final girl rule, if you like, if you buy into yeah. all that stuff. But it's not, you know. Leatherface isn't vanquished. She just gets away by the skin of her teeth, and this situation's going to carry on. You know, this is not yeah. going. And it's it leaves really a poor grim. old lorry driver who's completely unresolved at the end of the film, who's yeah. stopped to try and help them. This poor lorry driver is like <laughs> just left running away. We don't know yeah. what happens to him. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it it's. I mean, uh, just every part of this film i think you know from the moment we've got the the kids the the scooby-doo kids turning up in the van and they pick up the hitchhiker who is <laughs> the worst person you could possibly pick up as a hitchhiker <laughs> who is clearly mental you know this is not <laughs> gonna end well uh you know I, I, it's just I, I, and then we you know they get to the house and and all this kind of stuff it's it, it, you know like i said i think partly what makes this film it's that gnarliness it's the 70s feel it's the heat it's the flies buzzing around it's the sweat it's the blood it's the you know we can smell this rank situation but it's also you know um it's the sounds i think you know from this is is just you know it's the thud of the doors it's the 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 feet on the 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 old wooden planking floorboards it's all of that it just it's so real and so visceral it's there's very few films that are able to retain that amount of power you know i think from a year but we mentioned it earlier on the exorcist you know whatever people think of the exorcist personally i think that film retains 
just such a, a brilliant amount of power. It's a powerful film, you know. But I think it, it's clear, you know, The Exorcist is clearly a fantasy. Um, it's supernatural and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> where if you rip the supernatural elements, you know, this has none of that. Uh, this could happen, you know, uh, and that's what's terrifying, you know. It's it's the the, the difference between it's it's like the zombie film zombie films are really entertaining but they kind of have this release it's supernatural it's you can't yeah. this can't happen where they're, they're a the, roller coaster ride where you yeah. can get on the roller coaster knowing you're going to be safe at the end and, and, and just completely forget about it but have some uh, adrenaline running through your veins yeah but the natural uh, extension or the the upping of the ante on that is the cannibal film you know, the, the, if you look at uh, those cannibal films from the late seventies, early eighties, they are fucking nasty. You know, particularly cannibal Holocaust. I ain't. You know, that's I don't. That's not for me. <laughs> it's just I don't need to see real animals being slaughtered. You know, that there's there's no sense of escape there. It's just nasty for the sake of nasty. Uh -huh. But but with some this is kind of like the halfway house. This is not. You know, we, we hope nothing was really hurt during this or nobody was really hurt. But we could imagine it, it just looks so real that we can't you can't shake this like you can a supernatural film because you, you, you can imagine this happening, particularly at that time in America as well. You could imagine this happening in some sort of deserted township somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's 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 one of those things. And I think that's the reason it stays with you is there's that you, you know that that could happen. I mean, you're talking about hitchhikers in the 70s and 80s. I used to hitchhike all the time. Everybody hitchhiked. So it was something that we all did. Um, I got picked up by Derek Jarman once, which is a <laughs> proper of nothing, but just, <laughs> which is picked up. Yeah, yeah picked up. Um, <laughs> uh, but everybody hitchhiked. But at the same time, you knew that it was dangerous. You know, you, you nobody knew who was, and usually you got hit on. Which is probably why it's going to be night to death. It was usually somebody older who was going to try and hit on you. Yeah. But, um, Derek Jarman probably drove around the block about fifteen times, <laughs> waiting. <laughs> oh, it's there. Yeah. Oh, he's still there, Fab. <laughs> Where are you going? Yes, I'm going there too. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, how 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 would you? Because, I, like I said, I think people have been disappointed when they've seen this. And, I, I you know, I, I, I run a, I work at a place called Broadway Cinema. And, and I, I basically what I do is I run sort of uh, courses, you know, film education courses. And, and mostly mm -hmm. what I do is concentrate on cult and horror. Um, and the last course I did, you know, I, I was doing, it was called American Gothic. So it's kind of looking at the history of American horror films. And obviously we covered texas chainsaw massacre uh, so a lot of people had come and they'd seen it or they'd watched it for the first time or they'd previously seen it but yeah a lot of people were disappointed you know and and i was trying to kind of enthuse and try and sort of you know try and contextualize it but yeah this it remains a kind of disappointing film film for some people so obviously it's 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 a classic you know everybody look you know a lot horror community absolutely jumps on this but i think some people find it disappointing but how would you how would you sell it reality at a time when there was no reality i think for me that 
was the big selling point. And you can't return you can't return to that because we all now live in a world of reality entertainment. So it's difficult to sell it from the point of view that I saw it when it first came out, because there was nothing like it at all at the time. Um, but I, I don't know, I was I was surprised how well it stood up and how how much it traumatized me watching it again last night after all these years. I, whether that's because I think it's like your first lovemaking, your first real really being traumatized and horrified by a by a horror film is something that stays with you. And it's something that, w- that we are told um, over and over again when people come to see us at conventions that it was the first Hellraiser or, or, or Nightbreed. They were the first films that really um, scared scared people. You get these huge truckers coming up. You get the fucking life out of me. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm really pleased. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. How would you sell it? How would you sell it? I suppose a piece of history. Uh, I would say don't look at the hype. I think the reason that I was slightly disappointed in The Exorcist wasn't because it was a disappointing film, but because the hype on it had been so huge that you expect so much from it. Um, and and you're expecting, I, I, I was expecting as a kind of 17, 18-year-old to be... To, to, to be um, to be very intense as a film, whereas actually the um, watching The Exorcist back a few years ago with my nephew who'd never seen it, um, I was surprised how slow um, The Exorcist builds up because in those days that's what you needed. These days the audiences are expecting more um, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Um, although I think that's changing. I think that's changing now. I think we're going back to a, a more um, slow build. I think the audience again like to see something a bit, a bit more intelligent so i i think um things are cir- circular um have you seen x x mm. remind me probably uh, yeah there's kind of there's x and the, there's pearl as well which is the prequel um x is very much it it kind of very it, it riffs on the same imagery of texas chainsaw massacre so it's kind of like a group of people turning up it's kind of like 70s it's got it's kind of the background is that they're trying to make a porn up porno film and then all this kind of weird stuff happens but there are you know i'm it it's not i'm not saying it ripping uh texas chainsaw massacre off but the, the obviously the director is very much aware of that film uh-huh. and it is it does play like an homage you know it's really worth seeing it's really oh. eerie and strange and there are shots in x which you know you can tell i've, I've just they they have kind of tried to recreate some of those scenes from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, particularly the interior where you see the corridor and the door from inside. You know, it's very much uh-huh. lots of that stuff going on. I really recommend it. It's really good. It's re- it's a okay. really good. It, like I said, it's not ripping off Texas. It's got its own thing, but it's it's very much aware of what what's gone before and doing something through a twenty first century lens. But it's got that gnarliness and that strange, grainy feel to it as well. It's great. So, uh, Simon, have you got any uh, plugs for us? What are you, what are you, what are you up to? And is there anything you want to uh, sell? Let us know what's happening. Yes, I'm very bad at this. So I've got my list here um, because I always forget what. So I'm going to be working on the Black Eyed Children, which I mentioned before. I'm also um, that. So I've done this um, five part series for net uh, for Netflix for um, Amazon Prime. 
I've done a five-part series for Amazon Prime called Dark Ditties Presents, which is a horror anthology. And um, we are filming a kind of wraparound spoof documentary about that called Benoit, um, with, again, with Ken Cranham and um, Bruce Jones from Corrie, Mark, Mark Wingett from, um, from uh, The Bill. And Cordofina, uh, and Cordofina, yes, which I was an extra in back Were in you? the day. Were you? Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, an episode on that. Yeah, oh, I love Cordofina. <laughs> Before I went to drama school, um, were you were you I a mod a, or a rocker? I was a mod. Ah. I was a mod. I was very. I mean, I was. 16 17 and i probably looked about 12 so how i got the job i've no idea but i had an agent called bother boots who kind of um represented young men um and yeah he got me this extra work on uh, on quadrophenia in the nightclub scene where he throws himself on the balcony ah. i spent two days in this nightclub it was supposed to be in brighton but it was filmed in in london um listening to the same track over and over again <laughs> and uh, my main memory, because it was all filmed, obviously it was filmed in the 80s, early 80s, I can't remember. 79. But, yeah. 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 Um, was that the, the amount of smoke they had on this set. It was a huge set. And the smoke, you could literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I was thinking, how can a camera see through this? But it seems camera lenses can. Actors can't see each other, but the, the camera can see through it. I've, I've always been, I've seen that since in things, thinking... How is a camera? How does a camera see through this? Because I can't see through it anyway. Anyway, I, 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 I digress again. Now my iPad switched off. What else am I doing? So um, I've just done a thing which was shown at the British Film Institute recently um, with for Cambridge University and the Globe Theatre, which was um, it's called a Midsummer's Nightmare. Although I think I suggested that it should be called a Midsummer Night Scream. Uh works better for me yeah i think i think but i played puck mr puck and it was a kind of horror version of a midsummer night's dream um that the, the globe commissioned it was just a short but it was great great fun um i also worked filmed the witches of the sands which is a kind of epic film that's been filming for five years um and my scene was with um lawrence harvey from uh, the human centipede so i did a night night shoot with him on that which was which was fun that will be coming out hopefully this year but who knows and uh, and mosaic and uh yes so those are the things that i'm supposed to plug that i always forget that i'm supposed to do <laughs> probably haven't sold them very well but then i'm not very good at that bit well fantastic um yeah so um basically you just need to uh if you listen to these podcasts and people do i'm told <laughs> so please uh yeah so like and subscribe is all of that nonsense and if you could write us a review that would be amazing because we like to have, have reviews and it does help with distribution and all that um it just remains for me to thank my brilliant brilliant guest simon bamford thank i'm really really genuinely Thank you so much, Simon, for coming on. I know you're really busy and it's been brilliant to talk to you. It's been brilliant to talk to another Cenobite. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Will you thank Arrow Media as well for all the wonderful work they've done with, with all the uh, Clive Barker work? Um, it's very much appreciated from our from our side. Yeah, yeah, I do 
bits and bobs for Arrow. I write for Arrow uh, quite a lot. And um, yeah, I was invited to. They did the, um, you know, when they did the re-release of the 4K, sort of the first four uh -huh. films. Yeah, I was invited to that in London, but I couldn't get, unfortunately. So I'd, I'd like to have gone to that. But yeah, yeah, Arrow... Yeah, I love Arrow. Arrow just, you know, regardless of the fact that I do bits and pieces of work for them, it's just a great company and it's just brilliant. Yeah. I love, you know, I love the fact, you know, we had Graham Humphreys on uh, um, on my second uh, episode <laughs> and he does a lot of the artwork, the new artworks for Arrow and things like that. So, yeah. I met Graham um, recently in Sheffield and uh, what a wonder wonderful human being he is. He's, right. he's drawn me a few things. Again, he did some work on the, the dark did his presents um series uh what a lovely man what an he's absolute he is. he's lovely he's great and, and and yeah and it's just such a pedigree as well you know you talk to him uh -huh. kind of tend to think of him in as those kind of more newer arrow but then you know he goes way back and the the the, the you know the idea because he looks loads younger than he actually is you know and uh -huh. the, the idea that he did the original sort of posters for the British release of Evil Dead. I mean, they're just classic <laughs> designs, and it's it's amazing. You know, his stuff. I love his stuff. He's a, he's a lovely lovely chap. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some there's some like some absolute gems that work in the horror industry. Um, and when you meet them, you think how strange that all these charming intelligent people are working in the in the horror industry but there are so many of them and they are all lovely none of them are scary <laughs> well because the I, think, I think i think that that horror people get it out of their system it's kind of there it's you know we live kind of vicariously through that and it's all coming out of your system whereas i think people who tend to only watch eastenders <laughs> it's you just quite miserable aren't they <laughs> <laughs> i know clive barker says that if he hadn't become a writer he would definitely have been a serial killer <laughs> so i think you're correct <laughs> now you said now could you say he's a bit of recluse and he's he's on his own a lot do we have anything to worry about do you think no no he has a oh. partner who's absolutely lovely and he has a very scary bird called Malingo, who's like his Guard bird. Oh, it's terrifying. This bird is terrifying. Plus other birds and dogs. And now he's surrounded by very lovely things. But I don't know why he's a recluse. I don't know. He's always been a little bit like that. Even when I first met him 40 years ago, you would, I would go around to see him and he's so disciplined in his his art that you would go around, you would sit there for three hours waiting to see him. You'd see him for 10 minutes when he had a break in his concentration. And then he'd say, right, I'm going to go back to writing now. And you just that's still the way I, i'll go all the way to los angeles and i'll sit around his house for three days and see him for 10 minutes a day um but you respect that because you know that he's squirreling away writing creating drawing um and um thank goodness he does because the stuff he comes out with is wonderful yeah i, I just reread books of blood just before christmas and it cannot be overstated just how brilliant they are i mean just absolutely gripping just amazing i just it's just rammed with ideas yeah just, just yeah it's it's impossible to gauge just how talented he is i think he's just incredible incredible 
Yes. Um, but thank you. Thank you, Simon. I really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, if you ever fancy coming on again, if you've got another film you're desperate to talk about, let me know. Keep in touch. Okay. But uh yes. I'll, but... I'll tell Barbie she needs to to kind of get in touch. Yeah, I she has been in touch. I think we're gonna we're gonna be doing something, but yeah, 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 she seems uh yeah, she seems game. Uh so yeah, 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 definitely. Oh so remember to call round next time make yourself at home you look like you're dying for a nice cup of tea for Tara yes and I have my bone china out because of Texas Chainsaw Massacre I have been drinking out of my bone china in respect I've been cheating I've had coffee <laughs> <laughs> And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.